Welcome to this special episode of the CEC Report. My guest today is Joe Wilkes from New Zealand. Welcome, Joe. Thanks for having me, Robbie. Thanks for being here. Today we're going to talk about what the hell is happening in New Zealand's banks. And I've got Joe on because Joe is based in New Zealand. But Joe, before we begin, just uh, for the benefit of the viewers, for your qualification, who are you? And explain why an Aussie and a and a POM, because you're not a New Zealander, <laughs> are going to be talking about the New Zealand banking system. Well, um, yeah, I'm not. I'm not a New Zealander, but I've got three, three half New Zealanders, so I, th I think I almost qualify. Yeah. Um, basically, my background: I was uh, in the UK, uh, working and uh, running a residential real estate business uh, throughout the 2000s, and then uh, I finally finished with this firm back in 2017, and I was director of the company. Um, we spent, I guess, uh, a lot of time looking at the the build up of the UK credit bubble, um, the relaxation of lending standards, the fairly dubious nature of uh, who was being lent, uh, how much and, and, and uh, without the various credit checks. Um, and then subsequently spent a lot of time dealing with the aftermath of uh, the banking crisis that we saw. Um, but also, I suppose from a, from a main perspective, I was spent a lot of time dealing with the people who were suffering. Um, the, result, the result of a banking crisis created yeah. large stresses in households, families. We saw lots of divorce cases, lots of challenges with, with households. Um, and during the 2008 to 2011 period, I spent quite a bit of time talking to the banks um, about how they could relieve some of the pressure that was building up on households. And uh, they came up with all sorts of um, wonderful measures to, um, to try and to uh, stop the debt bubble imploding uh, successfully in one regard. Um, the UK is still there, hasn't blown up, albeit socially you can see with things like brexit and everything else has gone since uh, there is a fracturing of society now which um i think uh, we're gonna gonna see continue over the next few years so you you experienced that over there and then you moved to new zealand uh, only to find similar raw material is that right um actually yeah I, was, I came over here thinking it was the land of milk and honey and um then i realized that the milk and honey was being eaten by all the bankers <laughs> unfortunately there wasn't a lot left for a lot of people um We've we've got uh, lending practices and uh, I suppose a household debt issue, which um, makes the UK experience possibly look like a, a, a tea party at Buckingham Palace. Well, the, um, uh, the 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 main thing that Australians should be aware about when you're saying that is uh, New Zealand is a technically a separate country, but it's you know it's our closest brother or sister or cousin. Um, but your banks are our banks, and that's why we want to talk about today because the implications of what might be brewing in New Zealand, especially with let, let's go through some recent fairly dramatic um, events that have happened in the New Zealand banking system. Australians should be thinking, well, hang on, they're our banks. What does that mean for us? Um, so uh, let's just talk about a, a few things, the, the things I've noticed that I want you to comment on. Recent, just in the last week or so, the New Zealand government has announced a sudden deposit guarantee, and New Zealand hasn't had one for quite a while. What do you think is going on there? Um, we've got some major issues building in our housing market, um, and uh, one of the things that I think has been neglected by a lot of the uh, the banks and the regulators is the the impact that 
on a small country, a lot of foreign liquidity can have on a marketplace. Because yeah. that money, it hits a it hits a market, it hits the expensive parts of Auckland, wherever it might be, but it filters out across the country. And to compete with it, households have borrowed um, and borrowed and borrowed and borrowed. And I talk about the difference of, of of lending in the UK when we when we had our property bubble. There were a few banks that were going out and they were lending five and six times household income. There was instances of 125% mortgages, um, and we've had fairly high levels of, of interest-only mortgage debt, particularly in the investor sector. When you go back to where we were before we, we bust, um, interest-only mortgages in the UK were about 18% of all lending. They are around a third of all lending in New Zealand. Um, and they're pretty similar, uh, in fact, slightly higher in Australia. I know that Westpac, by the end of 2017, for example, their Australian residential loan book was 50% interest-only mortgages. Um, so they got, they got, they're down to around the third now because they did get very high, you're right. Yeah. Um, now, what you have beyond that is um, the, the concentration of high debt-to-income ratios on lending. Now, the Reserve Bank of New Zealand, uh, I think they, with the best will, they've, they've got the right intentions, but they haven't always been given the policy tools to try and affect some form of control over their Australian overlords. Yes. Um, and what's happened is that when they asked for debt to income measures back in 2014-15 to try and calm down the property market, already be experiencing quite a lot of foreign foreign cash injection, they were turned away by the then government. So the, the previous administration said, no, you're not having debt to income measures. Now, as a result of that, if you look at last year's lending... Or Hang on, just, just, just clarify, you're talking about controls on debt to income. That's what the Reserve Bank of New Zealand asked the previous administration yeah. for as one of their macroprudential tools. They were knocked back um, and John, as a result... John Key, John Key the, the, uh, the Morgan, what is it, the banker knocked him back. Yeah, his, um, he was the uh, Prime Minister at the time. Uh, I don't think it was his decision, but he would have been involved in it. Um, he's now Chairman of, uh, sorry, C uh, Chairman of uh, ANZ New Zealand and on the board of the uh, ANZ uh, Australian Division. Now, the, the lending over here has got out of hand. I mean, from the loan reporting figures that the RBNZ publish, um, their last year's 2018 lending it looks like there were 43% of loans that were written at multiples that were in excess of five, 25% of the lending was in excess of six, um, and that's six times household income. What I feel, what I'm concerned about, and this is from digging around, and, and I've been doing quite a lot of work with Martin North at Digital Finance Analytics, and we've looked at some things that just don't make sense. And, and, and one of the big things that doesn't make sense is how the Reserve Bank of New Zealand are reporting their total loan numbers relative to the amount of transactions that are physically taking place in the market. So to give you an idea, um, if you look at the data for 2018 sales, and the, the one that really stands out is the first time buyer loans, because by definition, that has to be for a purchase. Buyer, it's a purchase. Yeah, yeah. Now, in 2018, there were um, 67,197 transactions during the course of the year in New Zealand. So the real estate figures, that's how many sales there were. First time buyers took on a number of loans. It was 24,740, approximately 36.8% of the total transactions. Somehow they bought 36.8% of all the total transactions with around 16% of the total new loans written. It, it's an impossibility. 
Um, same applies for the year before. And so far this year, uh, we've got first time buyers. The loan numbers that the RBNZ are reporting at an average of, of around 415,000 as an average first time buyer loan, yeah. equating to around 37% of the total purchases that have meant to have been made using just over 17% of the mortgage debt. So what do you so, think is going on? I think what's going on is that um, the, the banks were given one slap on the wrist a number of years ago, 2014-15, we started introducing loan to value ratios. Yeah. Now, this basically limits the size of a loan relative to the value of the purchase. No mention of the debt to income, but what I think has been happening is that, and I've spoken to a number of brokers uh, over the last couple of months, is that most people, when they take on a mortgage for a first-time purchase, it's not everybody, but there is a large proportion, are actually taking on more than one loan as part of their overall mortgage exposure. Um, often one part slightly larger than the other. Uh, it's not uncommon, for example, for someone to take a wonderful one-year fixed rate with $400,000 of, of the mortgage, and then $200,000 is added on a three-year fixed rate to spread the interest rate risk in the future. So the bank's reporting the loans, but no one at the Reserve Bank of New Zealand has been checking at, actually against what the total number of transactions that the first-time buyers could have been responsible for. Um, overall, new lending, new lending first-time buyers as a proportion of loan numbers represents between 10 and 12% fairly consistently over the last 18 months. So you're saying that the, 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 the debt that the new home buyers are taking on is probably much bigger than is being reported? The concentration of debt in the system, I think, is higher. So there's lots of people in New Zealand who don't have a mortgage. Uh, we've got a third of the country who do have a mortgage. Um, and those people, particularly the late entrants, are taking on bigger mortgages because there hasn't been no control over how much they've been able to borrow. Is anyone else talking about this other than you? Uh, uh, there are a few voices that are commenting on various news sites and, and supporting some of the work that digital finance analytics are doing. Um, but nobody in the uh, wider press are talking about it. I have had discussions with people in the press about it. Um, and I have raised these numbers and this concern with people who are um, employed by the Reserve Bank of New Zealand and indeed people who were formerly employed by the Reserve Bank of New Zealand. Um, there hasn't been any public discussion about it, however. But what we are seeing is a lot of a lot of uh, noise in the banking sector at the moment. Mm. Well, you might also be a, a living example of the fact that it takes an outsider to come in and especially with your experience of what happened in London and say, you know, I see all I see all these same elements at play here. I just came back from a trip to Western Australia, for instance, where we were John Adams and I, the, John Adams, the economist, and I were taken around the northern suburbs of Perth by an Irishman who lived through the crash in Ireland in two thousand and eight, and he's seeing things in Perth that none of his friends um, can conceive of as being a risk, right? But it's sometimes what's the saying in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so these are things that when you look at it, you're, you, you have to think, well, um, these are risks that are not just in the property market. They're risks for the banking system. And is that what you think the Reserve Bank and the, and the authorities are thinking about when they're suddenly saying we need to put a deposit that guarantee on? What would their concern be um, with the deposit guarantee? Well, I think for, from a, 
I guess a household perspective, um, there is a there is a, a risk. We have got bail-in legislation in New Zealand. Uh, very few people in New Zealand are aware that we have bail-in legislation, um, but it was passed again by the previous key administration uh, back in 2016. Not so much fanfare. Um, and if you go into any bank, and, and we've tested this, we've gone in, we've walked into banks, we've spoken to people who are taking deposits from customers and asking them if they know what bail-in is, they, they, the bank staff don't have a clue. I went into six banks not very long ago for, for DFA um, and uh, of those banks, uh, the only bit that anybody was able to find out for me about bail-in, and they were all asking the other members of the teams, was when someone Googled uh, what is bail-in and came up with a digital finance analytics post about it. So, <laughs> <laughs> Banks don't know, um, but what the, the big risks for, for New Zealand are that because we are so dependent on four Australian banks for 85%, they hold 85% of the mortgage debt in, in this country, um, they hold a similar amount of the, the deposit uh, debt, you've got a very cloudy bail-in issue, but yep. without higher regulatory capital requirements, and the banks at the moment, they are holding capital beyond the bar three uh, doctrine. But there is a risk that if something like Westpac with their big interest only loan book and a falling housing market in many places in Australia, if Westpac say, oh, right, we could do with some more capital, it would be very easy to skip over the ditch, help yourself to the excess capital beyond the requirement levels of the New Zealand subsidiary and fund and recapitalize the Australian arm. And they so from a New Zealand perspective... Yeah. Just clarify, they're allowed to do that under New Zealand law, right? The, the parent bank in Australia can come and grab and leave, what, just 8.5% capital, something like that? Currently. Um, and and we, the, the, the challenge is every, every, you know, people talk about them as being separate legal entities, but where do the profits go every year? They, they, they yeah. disappear back over the ditch. And, and yes, there are New Zealand bank shareholders and there are pension firms in New Zealand that own shares in the banks, but... Um, the, the profits are largely finding their way back to the Australian parents. So it is a risk. And as a result, because of the the lending practices that you've seen in Australia that I, I know you ex exposed with Philip Seuss, um, those practices, they haven't been the same in New Zealand, but there's lots of similarities. Yeah. And therefore, we need to factor in. And, and I, I support the, the need for higher capital. I, I, I provided a submission to the Reserve Bank um, when they were asking for, for submissions on, on feedback on, on do we need higher capital in the banking sector. Now, I was one of 64 submissions. Um, so we've got a, a population that aren't really that aware of, of, of this because we have got a media that neglect business information and business news. For example, yesterday I watched the news in the evening. Not a single person mentioned that our biggest exporter of of, of agricultural produce from Terra, big cooperative, um, their share price fell 6.5% yesterday um, to a market capitalization of 5.54 billion. Now, I know uh, just off the top of my head that they they were carrying debt in excess of 6 billion last year. So things they don't get spoken about in New Zealand. Everything is awesome. Um, and we don't, you know, we, we don't talk about the things that actually are real and are happening under the surface. Um, so yeah, I, I, you know, I, I took umbrage to it probably about uh, seven or eight months ago. I happened to be in Australia for a weekend. I thought I'd call Martin and say, look, I fancy offering an alternative press with a bit more information, a bit more guidance. Well, and and um, can you comment just before we go on, on the reception that your and Martin's posts on digital finance analytics are getting over there, uh, apart from the one you just said about in the bank, um, in the bank 
you, I, I understand you're getting a good reception, but you're also getting some strange things by Google. Yeah, well, it's it's difficult. I think the, the thing we're finding, and, and to be fair, it's happened more since the Christchurch uh, terror attack, and, and I can understand you know the need for certain things not to be spread, but um, there are posts that we've, we've put out recently that um, haven't been captured by the various algorithms on um, on YouTube and therefore just sort of disappeared. Um, the key, I think, is just not to mention New Zealand anything um, and then <laughs> it, it gets picked up. So we've done some good posts that have covered New Zealand and, well, and well, Australia under different names. Well, Joe, you've you've just um, you've just fueled our suspicion, I must say, because we've been monitoring these laws post Christchurch, including the ones that New Zealand and Australia are pushing around the world to allow more internet censorship. And of course, it's billed as, you know, cracking down violence online, et cetera, but we read the fine print and the fine print can get very broad and come up with all sorts of things that are more political, et cetera. And it, it comes down to who gets to decide what that is, right? And if you're already experiencing that with your, all you're doing is, you're not controversial outside of the economic sphere at all. And if you're, if, if you're already being caught in that, that's, that's, um, that's not good. So yeah, let's hope let's let's hope this gets a good airing. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Um, so so among these actions of the banks that we've covered so far, they they put on this they're now going to put on this deposit guarantee quite suddenly, which um, the majority of Kiwis didn't realise they didn't have a guarantee, um, which which yeah. also says something about the Kiwi system. They've got bail in, which most Kiwis don't know about. It's called open bank resolution, and in fact, it's the most. As an outsider, I was always struck when we first came across the New Zealand bail-in. It's the most explicit bail-in regime in the world, right? And the only political reference I ever saw was by um, Winston Peters raising some questions at the time it was passed in Parliament. Um, he questioned some of it, but apart from that, nothing like the, the backlash that we've generated here in Australia. You've got the Reserve Bank, though, is now in, a, in an argument with the private banks over these capital requirements, right, that you mentioned, right, because yeah. the private banks are not that happy. And the private banks made this submission to the Reserve Bank recently saying, um, we don't think you're going to bail us in and we don't think you should. Now, I would agree with the second part. I don't think they should. But yeah. the but the, the, the denial of the banks, the Reserve Bank put them right back in their box, right, and said, no, these capital requirements are going in and they include bail-in. Yeah, well, Adrian Orr hit hero status for me on that, was he gave them a public slap on the wrist at the last financial stability report. Um, but it is interesting since then, the, the, the narratives carrying on. Um, it, it's been clouded a little bit with the various um, uh, misdemeanours of the uh, ANZ CEO. Um, the, he's, he left initially, wasn't very well. Um, then it turns out he wasn't very well don't know whether it was because he'd been borrowing a little bit more than he should have done from shareholders. Um, so you're, so that's had, what you're suspicious about, right? That the official story is doesn't wash with you about this yeah, it, departure. Yeah, it, it doesn't. I mean, there, there's there's too much murkiness under the water. Um, there was a house purchased by um, ANZ uh, under a subsidiary company back in 2011 for Mr. Hisco and his wife to live in. Don't have an issue with that. That's not a problem. You buy your executive. It's you know corporate relocation is quite quite common. Um, don't have an issue with him storing his wine in Australia, probably to avoid uh, import duty into into New Zealand. If you want if you want good stuff, you have to pay for them to, to to do certain things. What I do have an issue with is when six years later, after an ANZ funded refurbishment of the house that they bought for Mr. Hisco, 
um, the house was then sold. Well, you got to think we were, you know, we were going through a property boom where the Chinese and and you know the, the debt levels were rising. People were buying everything that, that came up, and prices rose exponentially. The house got sold at a loss from the purchase price, <laughs> which is which is murky, and I don't like murky. I like transparency. <laughs> You've been too kind, I suspect, murky. Yeah, well, it, it it never saw the open market. It was sold at a loss. And the new CEO or acting CEO of ANZ was one of the three directors that signed the paperwork on that loss. So that's shareholder fraud, in my view. You know, it, it was an asset. It had gone up um, and the shareholders have been, been diddled. So what unfortunately has happened is that this has got so much news in the press that we've forgotten to talk about the other things that are going on, which is the, the, the battle between the um, the banks and the Reserve Bank of New Zealand. There's not been very much discussion about what the um, the banks have actually been saying to the Reserve Bank of New Zealand. Westpac's submission, uh, they said, well, if capital ratios are going to go up, we'll either have to look at how much money we lend into the, into the market. Um, we may have to reduce our, our exposure to New Zealand. Oh, and we might have to sell. Now, if that's not a veiled threat, yeah, I don't know. But these things don't get talked about in, in the press. Um, following on from that, you then had the the bailing, uh, sorry, the uh, depositor guarantee um, announcement. The detail of that will take some time to iron out. What I'd like to know is who's doing it, and at what point will the depositor guarantee kick in? In the UK, where I've come from, depositor guarantee kicks in at the point the banks fail, not at the point that they need recapitalising. So again how transparent will this process be and will the general public be be made aware because new zealanders like in australia they shouldn't assume that a deposit guarantee suddenly means their money's safe from bail-in because they're actually separate processes if Absolutely. if they have to get if they have to recapitalize through a bail-in they'll do that and and say the guarantee is just if the bank goes under but bail-in stops the bank from going under and and just to emphasize so with the with the the, the shenanigans around the anz boss one of the factors there is ANZ is by far your biggest bank, right? Enormous. They've got the largest exposure to our mortgage market. Um, uh, we, we have got one of the most expensive housing markets in the world. Uh, in 2016, uh, the Economist published data that said that we were the highest in terms of debt to um, household income measures, debt to rental income measures. Uh, we're, we're off the chart, um, and, you know, we 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 actually look make you know I, I ran a post not very long ago where we talked about the the comparative price of the, the some of the main cities around Australasia and I, at the time we were using an exchange rate of one dollar for New Zealand to one dollar Aussie and Auckland is um, not as expensive as Sydney but more expensive than Melbourne on a dollar for dollar median price yeah. purchase yeah. Wellington which is a it's a small city. Um, yeah. More expensive than Brisbane on a median house purchase for purchase, um, and uh, I can't think. I think they were the the, the two, but it was um, it's shocking how how expensive they because wages here are lower, um, interest rates largely similar, slightly higher, slightly higher mortgage rates at the moment. So things don't things don't make up sense. But we have to grow our household debt, and unlike a lot of the rest of the world, where the growth in household debt plateaued and didn't carry on going up like yours has and, and ours has. New Zealand successfully increased our household debt from around 150 billion New Zealand dollars back in 2008-9 when we had a financial crisis. We've now got over 265 billion dollars of, of household debt. Um, 
the agricultural sector is screaming. Um, and it's not that everybody's in debt, it's just that those that are are in a load of it. Um, yeah. So yesterday we had one of our co-op, one of our um, West Coast farms sell. I talked about the cooperative, uh, Fonterra, and the challenges that they're experiencing having to sell assets that are, are performing to cover off the debts that they've got on the, the non-performing assets. So ANZ is very exposed. Um, they are they are by far our biggest lender, and and, and they're throwing the toys out of the pram at the moment. Well, um, let's just conclude this all just with a brief discussion about. Um, Glass-Steagall, because as you know, we have a campaign here to break up the banks so that they can, you know, we've got to stop the banks being able to do this excessive lending, which comes under commercial banking, but it's actually speculation. That's why the banks are doing it. Very profitable. I think I've seen the figures where the per capita, the per, per capita profits of the, of the Australian banks, New Zealand subsidiaries is like $200 higher than what they're getting out of the Australian public. So we're really, thanks to this method the banks are using, we're really extracting the profits. So we need that kind of um, uh, structure in New Zealand, right? So we can start reining in what the banks are doing. Yeah, I mean, I, if you look at New Zealand, and, and I know that you've talked about it in Australia, we don't really know how much exposure that the banks have. And the derivatives um, that... Back in 2015, uh, October 2015, and reported on in early 2016, there was a report done by, um, oh, who was it? It was KPMG, I think, on derivatives exposure held by the New Zealand subsidiaries of the Australian banks. At the time, derivatives exposure was about 2.7 trillion New Zealand dollars. I can't find since then where that's reported. So that's one thing we don't know. Um, I'm a big believer of... of uh, we've we've had a, a, an issue that's built over the last forty years because there's been too much lending for financial asset transactions, yeah. Uh, and, and and this money gets created. So the money gets created when a loan is written. Um, the the loan creates the deposit on the bank's balance sheet, yeah. And that is what we we pay for over thirty years. Now, you keep pumping money into financial assets, you kill your productive economy. Um, we've killed ours in the UK. So part of me doing this is. Shit, we we really fucked up in the UK. Don't follow what we did. Um, we need to try and get a balance of 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 the regulators understanding credit creation better and trying to focus the credit creation into productive sectors of the economy. They don't create these big asset booms and bust, um, but do allow for businesses to provide jobs, improve people's lifestyles, um, provide infrastructure services, all the other things. Um, and until we've got that, uh, we're going to continue through this boom and bust cycles, which you haven't experienced yet properly in Australia and New Zealand. Um, you will. Um, which is one of the problems, obviously, in terms of understanding yeah. this. Um, you, will, you will experience it because private debt's out of hand. And the way that they tried to solve it in the UK was we pushed interest rates down to nearly zero, quarter percent. Um, we started when we hit our straps, you know, base rate was around five and a quarter percent and we were at half a percent within 12 months. You can't go much lower and your debt is a lot, your debt is a lot bigger in terms of proportion of household debt to, to GDP. Now, the way that we tried to overcome our debt issues were cheap money, more government spending, 
um, uh, you know, we we had our austerity, but actually there was a lot of stuff that was taken off the the banks' balance sheets to keep them maintaining lending into the private sector. Um, and what the other thing that, that wasn't talked about in the UK was we opened the doors and we, you know, we invited the, the population of the UK, sorry, of, of New Zealand, another four or so million people into the UK over the last 10 years. Um, and I don't have anything wrong with immigration. It's not, it's not a, a bad thing. You get new minds, you get a bit of creativity, you get people who want to go and improve their lives. But the challenge is if you've not prepared for it, you get social pressures of, not being able to get into a school that's on the doorstep and you're driving across town in heavy traffic to, to get to the school on the other side of town. So you have to be able to prepare your infrastructure for the increase in the population rather than increasing the population, just helping that, hoping that. It's not, it's, not demand, it's not demand driven. It's done to stimulate and yeah. not, and you know, the, the needs of the community come last. And in Australia, there's people here who call it population QE, right? Using the population as, as, as a, uh, a stimulant. Um, well, Joe, I want to thank you very much. You and I are going to talk a lot more about this. Um, Look forward to it, Robbie. But for the viewers, just to emphasise for the viewers, New Zealand's banks are our banks. And um, Joe keeps a close eye on what's happening over there. And um, there is a chance, uh, there's, a, there's an agreement between New Zealand's regulators and our regulators to deal with a, a uh, to coordinate their response to a crisis. We know New Zealand's got bail-in. We know Australia's got a backdoor version of bail-in. And when you start to see the kinds of rumblings in the New Zealand banking system like Joe's talking about, that, that he's talking about it uniquely because no one else wants to, right, um, which, is, which is not dissimilar to what we're talking about here, except there's a lot more people, thanks to people like Martin North and John Adams, et cetera, that have started to get attention onto it. When you, when you see that, you've got to realise there is something wrong. Right, so we'll monitor this closely, st stay in touch with Joe and hopefully achieve the kinds of reforms we need on both sides of the ditch, Glass-Steagall, etc. So, Joe, thanks very much. Thanks for having me, Robbie.